Welcome to Insight 2018, presented by Annex Wealth Management and sponsored in part by eCourtReporters.com and Associated Builders and Contractors of Wisconsin on WTMJ. Now, here's your host, Jeff Wagner. Well, thank you all very much. Welcome to Insight 2018. It is my pleasure to introduce my very dear friend, the president and CEO of the Wisconsin State Fair, Kathleen O'Leary. Kathleen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening. How long have you been with the State Fair? This will be my 21st Wisconsin State Fair. I started very young. (laughs) (laughs) And as president and CEO, how long? This will be, 2018 will be my second official year, but it's my third year. I was interim in 2016. Kathleen, your industry in particular is very, very male-oriented. You, you not only kicked in that glass ceiling, you've advanced on top of it. What is it like to be a woman in, in this industry? You know what? I love it. And I think that I've, I love it more so because it's just evolved. Um, when I started this 20 years ago, and the Wisconsin State Fair is part of a very large organization called the International Association of Fairs. And I remember walking into my first annual convention with thousands of, of different fairs. I mean, it's major fairs, it's county fairs, it's expositions, it's rodeos, it's livestock shows. And you could probably count on one hand the females. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of where we've gone in 21 years is amazing. And now it's dominated by women. I mean, there's still not a lot of women CEOs, but women marketing directors and directors of ag and directors of operations, which is even, you know, I find that to even be more wonderful, just facilities and operations. So I've I always been in a male-dominated business. Before I came into the fair business, I was in the beer business. Right. Very young age, coming out of college. Now, obviously, the fair business we, we always think about the institution of the state fair, but, but it is the entertainment business. What are, what are some of the big challenges you face in staging a state fair in 2018? Well, when it comes to entertainment, and, and we live in, you know, having a, a state fair in a very urban setting is not an anomaly, but it's, it's a little more on the rare side. And when it comes to Milwaukee and when it comes to Wisconsin, I mean, there's a beautiful part of this, which is we have, I mean, we're a city of festivals. We have, you know, our friends on the lakefront that are truly a music festival. We have, you know, Country Thunder, Country USA, you know, Country, you know, up in Eau Claire. We have rock. So the, the competition. And then we have these great venues downtown. And then, you know, we're less than 90 miles away from Chicago, right? So Ravinia and all of these. It's a very, very competitive market. And then on top of that, when you have these up-and-coming artists or you have artists that are tried and true, there was always that, a little bit of that stigma. Country, sure, they'd play a fair. But then there were some of these that were like, oh, do I really want to play a fair? And now they know that it really puts them on the map. So from that standpoint, we're doing a great job. We're really making a difference. We have a great lineup, by the way. <laughs> she, she wants to tell you about that in a second. I'll, I'll give her a chance for that. You know, I, 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 I talk to a number of people who do what you do or run festivals, and one of the variables that people can't control is the weather. I mean, if you get a streak of rain or heat or cold, that really poses a challenge to you. And in 21 years, I think I've seen everything but (laughs) snow, God forbid. Um, And it is, and we're in Wisconsin, and in 11 days, it can be 105, which 
the, the little myth, and I'll share a couple hopefully over the course of this interview, a few myths that people think and then they're not real, but um, it isn't rain that's our nemesis, it's heat. In Wisconsin, Wisconsinites do not like heat. So when it rains, you'll still come. You have, we, have, we have over 20 acres where you can duck in, you can duck into this pavilion and listen to a little music and go into the barn, you can go into the 200,000 square foot exposition center and buy well, Whenever kinds Kathleen's of on the radio with me, it's always, oh, by the way, we've got the 2,000 square foot exhibition center, come on out and buy a mop. So that's, yeah. <laughs> or a salsa maker, make a few friends. But it's, so rain is not, I mean, certainly if it's going to be a downpour or a tornado, but it's that heat. And I've, I've been through a number of affairs. I mean, when we brought in, you know, refrigerated trucks with water, just because we have to keep people hydrated, number one, for health reasons, but just for, for the safety. And they just, you, either they won't come, uh, or when they do come, they don't stay as long. You don't eat as much. You don't drink as much. So heat is really what we really fear, and, and it is. We can do everything right. We can check off every box. We can cross every T. We can dot every I. But we get a tough 11 days. It's going to hurt us. Mm-hmm. It's going to hurt any weather-dependent festival. Now, now, we talk about the festival, but, but your duties go beyond that because, I mean, I mean, actually, it's a full-time job. I know you've got close to 50 full-time employees. You're, you're also tasked with trying to manage the park and, and make money those other days when the state fair isn't running, right? Absolutely, and proud to say to everyone in the room that, and all the listeners, that I mean, we're active at Wisconsin State Fair Park 48 weeks out of the year. I mean, between everything that goes on in the Exhibition Center, obviously the Wisconsin Products Pavilion, but then the agriculture. We're the agricultural showcase um, of the state during our 11 days of our Wisconsin State Fair, but we host a number of agricultural shows. And if one of my initiatives is that I want, to, I want Wisconsin State Fair Park to be that agricultural destination. We're the destination for the regional and you know, the local trade shows and home to you know, the, the people that have been with us and the promoters that have been with us and the exposition center love the expo. But I want those agricultural shows. I want those horse shows. And we've already really made a difference in the course of the last two and a half years. Obviously, one of the biggest challenges you're going to have moving forward is the Milwaukee Mile. Mm -hmm. Um, People, there is a tradition of auto racing in this city. Recently, promoters haven't been able to make it work. What's going to happen with that? What would you like to see happen with that? Oh, Gosh, there's no question that I would love to see racing come back. I mean, that's what it's steeped in, that, that racing tradition. It's unfortunate. The racing industry is in transition right now. The viewership is just plummeted, the TV viewership. Will they rebound? We hope so. You know, I mean, the NFL deals with it. The, you know, baseball deals with it at different points in time. Unfortunately, the racing industry is really, really in a, in a situation right now. And then you throw in a mile. You, know, you throw in that one-mile oval. One-mile oval racing is not a thing of the past. It's not that there's never going to be a major racing at Wisconsin State Fair Park right now. But if I was to say that it, I can promise anyone in this room or any listener that's listening to this that we're going to have a, a race in the next year or two, no, I can't do that. Okay, so then looking forward, let, let's, let's look at the realities that cost a lot of money just to get the license to do that. You'd have to have somebody with extremely deep pockets, and the recent history has not been good. At what point in time do you decide we have to find some different use 
for that space, and what is that different use? Well, I can tell you right now that we're not sitting idle, right? So even while we're not hosting major races, that track is hot 48 you know, days, multiple 48 events out of the course of the year. Between vintage indie racing, we have a number of different racing events that are going on, tire testing. Rusty Wallace is doing a lot of different things with us there. So we're, very, you know, we're doing a lot of things, but it's non-traditional programming. There's no question that we really need to think outside of the box. You know, we're collaborating with Howard. Harley for the 115th anniversary. We're doing things like that. Will it be a music festival? Will it be an X Games? That's yet to be seen, but we're aggressively looking at other options while we are in this, and I call it a transition period and a a transition window. We are not breaking down walls. We're not breaking down permanency, those race walls, those safety fences. Once we do that, we're basically saying goodbye to being a host of any major race, and we're not ready to do that yet. At some point in time in the future, maybe, but not yet. Not yet. All right. But before we, we let you go, give me a couple of the other state fair myths. The other state fair myths? That we are a state-owned, you know, a state land. So we're not taxpayer dollars. That's really important for people to know. Every dollar that we make at Wisconsin State Fair Park is program revenue funded. So every dollar that we make goes back into programming and making that 11 days the best 11 days of summer to making sure that we're doing infrastructure right. We just finished a great electrical project that took us six years and cost multi-million dollars. It's the furthest thing from sexy, but what it does is it creates a great Wisconsin State Fair. It creates a great opportunity for us to make it be the greatest thing that it has been for 100 127 years at Wisconsin State Fair Park and 167 Wisconsin State Fairs in our great state of Wisconsin. So when I buy that beer mm-hmm. at, at the beer tent, I'm actually contributing to the overall tradition and history of the fair. Absolutely. You're steeping us deeper and deeper and deeper. <laughs> okay. Kathleen, just between you and me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just between you and me, when, <laughs> when you're wandering before. around the, the, the state fair and nobody's looking, what's the go-to thing? What's the, what's the thing that you have to have? And it doesn't have to be on a stick, but if it is, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's two. There's there's a food and there's an experience. So I'll share both of those in the little time that we have. I love the bison burritos, and and it doesn't really change a lot. I so I love the bison burritos. However, um, Albanese's was a Sporky winner. They've been with us for only two years, and they won the Sporkies, which is our our food competition that we've been doing. This will be our sixth year. And they made this deep fried spaghetti and meatballs. It was amazing. I hardly ever eat. I lose weight during the fair, which is unheard of. But um, I probably went back maybe four times, maybe five. Um, And then there's no question. I will never. I mean, the moment those horses are in the house, I have to watch the hitch. And the hitch shows are magical. They're the, the Clydesdales and the, the Percherons are gentle giants and to watch these little, I mean they're kids, they're t- 10 years old, they're 14 years old and they're just maneuvering these huge hitches. It's awesome and it's just it gives us that great pride of our youth that are going to be our leaders of this great state at some point in time. See Kathleen and I have had this tradition, we, we, WTMJ for years and years does this cream puff giveaway so I can't tell you how many years <laughs> we have been at like 4.30 in the morning out in front of the Pettit Ice Center watching cars line up to get a six-pack of cream puffs. So hopefully you'll have a chance to do that 
Again, I keep thinking, who would get up at 2.30 in the morning, drive from Middleton to wait in line to get a six-pack of cream puffs? And people do. Oh, we've seen the line. So last year, we had over 1,000 cars waiting when we opened the gates at 6 o'clock on that morning when we did that. One of the things, Kathleen, that I just, and I'm glad you'd come out tonight, because for, for people... This woman, it's not just a job. It is a passion for her. It has been for years and years, and I think the Wisconsin State Fair is in very good hands. Kathleen O'Leary, the President and CEO of the Wisconsin State Thank Fair. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Insight 2018, presented by Annex Wealth Management and sponsored in part by eCourtReporters.com and Associated Builders and Contractors of Wisconsin on WTMJ. Now, here's your host, Jeff Wagner. Welcome back. It's Insight 2018. We are now joined by Sauk County Circuit Judge Michael Skranek. Judge Skranek is going to be on the ballot next Tuesday running for what will be a vacancy on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Judge, first of all, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. All right. Um, A statewide race. (laughs) How have you found that to be? You know, it's been really interesting. And somebody told us early on, because this is a new experience for my wife, and me that uh, we would it would be hard it would be grueling and rigorous but that you would meet uh, the nicest people along the way and that has been our experience Uh, my wife and I have enjoyed this campaign season far more than we anticipated it's been really great traveling together all around the state and we have met uh, the nicest folks uh, throughout the state see my experience running for statewide office was what doesn't kill you makes you stronger so that's that's it um Let's talk a little bit. There's clearly a difference in this race between you and your opponent. What do you view as the role of a justice on a Supreme Court to be? Yeah, and I agree. I think that the voters in the state have a very clear choice in this election. I think they've had a clear choice like this before, but it's never been so obvious. I believe strongly that the role of a court is to apply the law as they find it, recognizing that judges are not legislators, Neither are we executives, uh, and we, we're not to interpret and apply the law according to our own personal or political beliefs, but simply based on the statutes and the Constitution. So I believe strongly in, uh, in upholding the rule of law, respecting the separation of powers, allowing the two political branches to set policy for the state as long as they act lawfully, and then interpreting the Constitution as it was originally intended, and not uh, not changing the Constitution on the fly, amending it on a case-by-case basis to, just to fit uh, the policy whims of a majority of justices on our Supreme Court. So, so as a practical matter, if there's a case in front of the Supreme Court that, on the one hand, you can con- conclude that the law was validly enacted and fits the Constitution, even though you may disagree personally, You wouldn't have voted for that if you were in the legislature. You disagree with the outcome. If the law was properly decided and enacted, you you uphold the law? Absolutely, because that's the role of of the judicial branch. The people have never empowered the, the judicial branch to veto policy choices that were lawfully made by the legislative and executive branches that the justices simply disagree with. And I think the best, clearest example we have of that is Act 10. Uh, And I had the privilege of uh, defending Act 10 as part of a small team of attorneys from our law firm and the attorney general's office. Now, I worked on six different cases, but the one that challenged the merits of Act 10 in Wisconsin was the Madison teacher's case. 
And Justice Crooks was on the court at that time, and he thought, exactly as you described, he thought that Act 10 was a very bad policy choice. He didn't like it. He, uh, he actually wrote an eight-page concurrence in that decision to demonstrate how badly he thought it was a piece of bad policy. But he said, as a matter of law, when we, when we view this as a matter of law, which we must, we will uphold it. Later on, he said it's not even a close call as a matter of law. So he understood that his role as a justice was not to veto that law because he didn't like it. His role as a justice was simply to apply the law. During this campaign, your opponent has been essentially traveling around the state and, and talking about some of those issues, Act 10, voter ID, things of the like, certain gun issues, and, and talking about, in many ways, how she disagrees with them. Um, from a policy perspective, do, do you think that's appropriate in, in the role of a justice? I don't think it's appropriate. Our Judicial Code of Conduct prohibits judges, sitting judges, which both of us are, or candidates for judicial office from uh, making any statements in the context of a campaign that would either commit or appear to commit that candidate to a specific position in case that issue were to come back in front of the court. I believe that, uh, that my opponent has come very close, if not stepping over the line in that. She's also talked a lot about what she calls her values. She refers to them as her Wisconsin values. Uh, what she really is talking about is a liberal activist agenda. And what she told the uh, host on Wisconsin Public Radio Central Time is she's urging voters to vote for her so that she can advocate for the policies that need to be changed in order to advance her political agenda. And I just fundamentally disagree that the, again, that the people have ever empowered our court, our justices, to, advac to advocate for policy change. Uh, right, if you want policy change, you run for governor or run for the legislature. That's right. I think we actually have a word in the English language for that, uh, th that action of advocating for policies that need to be changed. It's called lobbying. And lobbying takes place in, in the legislature. And you can lobby the governor's office. You can lobby administrative agencies. But you can't lobby the court. That's not set up for that. Uh, we, we have briefing. We have oral argument. And then the court makes its decision. So the people have never given the court the authority uh, to set policy for the state in that way. And that's why I say the voters really do have a very clear choice in this race. There, one of the words that gets thrown around a lot is, is recusal, which means when a judge or a justice should step down, take themselves off a case. There's obviously a lot of money in campaigns. Lawyers donate a ton of money to campaigns. When, in your opinion, is it appropriate for a judge or justice to recuse themselves when they're dealing with either a law firm or individual attorneys who've given them money? Yeah, that's a very difficult uh, question when you're talking about the Supreme Court because we have no substitute justices. So when we're talking about a Supreme Court justice stepping off of a case, that means that the parties in that case and the citizens all across the state who may be very interested in the legal issues involved in that case won't have a full court actually deciding the case. But at the, the linchpin of our judicial system is an impartial justice, impartial judges and impartial justices. And our recusal rule requires me as a circuit court judge right now in Sauk County uh, to evaluate every single case and determine whether there's any reason whatsoever that I cannot remain impartial. And if I determine that I cannot, I must step aside. And uh, that could be because I feel too strongly about a party or an issue that's involved in the case or for any other reason. Uh, so that's, it's, a, it's an important uh, 
it's an important issue for our court, but it's important to remember that on the circuit court, if I step down, we have hundreds of other judges that can fill in. Uh, and so it's, it's easy to recuse yourself on the circuit court level because you know you've got other judges to come in and backfill. On our Supreme Court, that's not the case. And so the, it's important in the context of this election to recognize that we have an elected judiciary. And anybody and any group that wants to participate in this campaign by having their voice be heard, uh, I think should feel free to do that and not be concerned that their participation in this campaign would cause either one of us, uh, whichever one of us would prevail in this election, from stepping aside if, if a case would happen to come in front of the court, say, five, six, seven years from now, and that individual or group happens to be involved in the case. Judge, you... Um you're in the middle right now of a lengthy statewide campaign. Like you were saying, you and your wife traveling all over, a lot of, being mon- a lot of money being spent on radio ads and television ads, some by the candidates, a lot by third parties from outside. Let me go back to something you just mentioned. Would we be better off, and maybe this isn't the right time to ask you this question, but would we be better off if justices were appointed instead of elected? I know a lot of people wonder about that. And we have an elected judiciary. That's what we've selected in this state. We've had it forever. Uh, and that, that system trusts the voters. So it, it trusts that the voters will uh, inform themselves, make informed choices, and it puts the power of uh, control in the hands of the voters. The, con- the concern I have with going to a, a, a different selection process is I don't think, and people shouldn't believe, that that would necessarily take any politics sure. out of the decision-making. What it actually would do is it would drive the politics behind closed doors where the people wouldn't have any access to it, and I don't know that that's a better system. I, I trust the voters, and I think we've got a good system here in Wisconsin. The election is next Tuesday. It is an important election. Everybody who is eligible to vote in the state of Wisconsin can vote. We encourage people to go out and do it. And Judge Michael Skranek, thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to Insight 2018, presented by Annex Wealth Management and sponsored in part by eCourtReporters.com and Associated Builders and Contractors of Wisconsin on WTMJ. Now, here's your host, Jeff Wagner. Insight 2018 from the Country Springs Hotel. We are joined now by, gosh, I I can't even, I don't even want to think about how many years we've known each other, the Attorney General of the State of Wisconsin, Brad Schimmel. Jeff, before we get into it, I can help you out with something. I know you were having trouble remembering what other band you wanted to see at at, uh, State Fair this summer. It's four on the floor. Okay. My band, yeah, will be uh, the Miller Light stage on August seventh, I think Tuesday. Oh, okay, uh, can can you give me a seat up front? <laughs> uh, that won't be a problem. <laughs> that, that is interesting, Brad. I mean, okay, you you got this this big time job. You're a constitutional officer from the state of Wisconsin, and you still find time to play in a band. It's harder and harder to find the time, but I won't give it up. Um, it's something I love, and I'll tell you honestly. Up on the stage, I still feel like the 16-year-old playing in the band, the garage band with my buddies. I, <laughs> I don't remember that I'm balding, that my kids are teenagers and think I'm an idiot and all those other things. You forget that when you're up there playing. A um, lot of stuff has gone on since we, we talked last year. Let's talk about a couple issues and, and how the state is, is approaching this. Um, clearly, 
one of the issues that's been the news lately has been the, the whole question of gun control and how the criminal justice system should respond to that. From a law enforcement perspective, what would you like to see happen? Well, we're doing what I would like to see happen. Um, the governor announced and, and the legislature passed and he signed $100 million in grants to local schools to help them make their schools less attractive and less vulnerable targets. Uh, you know, the day before the terrible tragedy in Florida, we actually at the Wisconsin Chiefs of Police Association had a mom from Connecticut, Michelle Gay. Her daughter was murdered at Sandy Hook Elementary. Michelle's also a teacher, so she had the training. She knew what teachers were trained in, and then she saw that day what didn't work. And she's been going across the country promoting a, pro, a safe and sound school program that she's, uh, that she's spearheading. And she talked to the Chiefs Association that day before and laid out all these ideas, and none of them dealt with guns. And her message to all of us was, don't get bogged down in the stuff that no one can agree on. Because every time one of these tragedies happens, we break down in these arguments that no one agrees on, and nothing ever happens. And she urged, I want you to do something. After her remarks that night, the uh, director of the uh, Chiefs Association invited all the chiefs there, about 400 of them, to bring their school officials back in August, and we're gonna have Michelle back to talk again further, but have school administrators and law enforcement together. Those are things that work. When we start talking, giving schools the resources to be able to make their schools a less attractive and less vulnerable target, we've got that accomplished in Wisconsin. We're moving forward. By the end of the school year this year, we're going to be announcing to schools the grant money they're getting to harden their targets, so to speak, and uh, hopefully by the beginning of next school year, those schools are going to have safer schools for our kids. We'll actually accomplish something, which doesn't happen after these things. Are you a supporter of armed guards and armed law enforcement people in the schools? Absolutely. School resource officers make a difference, and we saw that in Maryland. You know, after Columbine, we trained nationwide based on what happened there, which had multiple shooters. And you, you know, you were part... You, we're living this too in law enforcement. It was, it would have worked there, but it hasn't worked for anything since. We know ever since that it's been single shooters who, as soon as they're confronted with someone trained with a gun pointed at them, they either commit suicide, they give up their guns, or the officer takes their life. Um, all of those are good end results to a school uh, violence incident. So, um, Absolutely, as we saw in Maryland, a school resource officer. Um, also, another great opportunity is to bring in former law enforcement who keep up their certification. We'll train them to make sure they have the best, the best up-to-date training to take care of school safety and put them in the schools. Absolutely, these shooters are cowards. That's why they pick this target, because they think no one there in this gun-free zone is going to confront them. And if we, as soon as we confront them, it's over. Brad, let's talk a little bit about something I know is near and dear to your heart and something I know you're also very proud of, and that is the, the way the state of Wisconsin has been tackling the, what we'll call the opioid epidemic. It, you know, we've talked about this before. When I was a federal prosecutor, heroin, heroin was not on, on anybody's radar screen. It, it just wasn't. And now between heroin and opioids, it has exploded over the last five, ten years. It certainly has, and it goes a little deeper than that. 
I mean, I remember in 2005 when I was an assistant DA assigned to the drug unit here in Waukesha County, um, we suddenly started seeing heroin popping up in Brookfield, Menominee Falls, Oconomowoc, Muskego, Maquanago. These communities where we we never saw thought we'd see heroin again. And we started seeing drug overdose deaths. And we started taking action to deal with it. But of course, in law enforcement, our first our first response is was always has always been we're going to arrest some drug dealers. But the world has changed. Um, the source of the drugs is con- it's controlled from Mexico and Central America and South American drug cartels. And we've learned finally that go, just going after the source or going after the supply side won't solve the problem. If you leave the demand side unresolved, you're, it's going to come back. Someone will supply the drugs to fill that vacuum. So we're working much harder now on treatment and prevention efforts to make sure that we reduce the demand side while still busting the people that are involved in trafficking the drugs. You've been attorney general for four years. What what case, if you could, do you think you're proudest of over that four years? You know, I think people would expect, as I'm, I'm in my 29th year in law enforcement, people would probably expect that I would say something to do with public safety. But frankly, the thing I'm most proud of is Wisconsin was the state that wrote the brief and wrote the declarations page that got the United States Supreme Court to stay the implementation of the Clean Power Plan. And uh, in the history of the U.S., the Supreme Court has never done what they did that day when they stepped in and issued an injunction against a regulatory agency before there was ever a trial in the lower court. First time in American history it happened, and that was done by the Wisconsin Department of Justice. And we saved Wisconsin from losing tens of thousands of well-paying, family-supporting manufacturing jobs if that terrible overreach by the federal government had gone into place. What are you most frustrated with? Anything? Um, One of my big frustrations is trying to raise awareness about the methamphetamine problem that is growing. Northwestern Wisconsin's been experiencing it for years, and um, I'm working hard to get the rest of the state to get it. You know, most of the legislators are in the southern part of the state, and they aren't experiencing it in their communities yet. They will. Um, the northern communities are having a lot harder time. We launched a um, we launched a great public awareness campaign that has 41 northern counties working to uh, do the no meth K N O W. It is a play on words. Both understand what it is and don't start. Um, it's more addictive than the opiates. Um, it causes brain damage as you use it, and it's cheaper. And it's coming from the same place that the heroin's coming from. It's coming from the Mexican drug cartels. Has the politics of the job surprised you? It seems every time you you take a position, inevitably there's all sorts of stuff on the other side saying, oh, this is terrible, he's a political hack, etc. All this is is trying to fulfill this agenda or that agenda. Has, has the politics surprised you over the last four years? No, I certainly expected it. When I ran for attorney general, um, Governor Walker had already survived a recall. I, I, I knew what I was getting into, and I'm not surprised. I remain disappointed because there are people that I've talked with outside of the public purview, and we've agreed, and we've talked about how we're going to work together on things, and then as soon as there's a camera rolling, <laughs> all of a sudden there's the vitriol and stuff, and I'm shaking my head going, what's that all about? We're working together. We're doing great things. And you know what, some pe- what people don't know or most people don't know, is that 
over 90% of the legislation that's passed in Wisconsin is bipartisan in nature. We're doing great things working together, but unfortunately, all the people here is the fighting. Brad Schimmel, Attorney General of the State of Wisconsin, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. Welcome to Insight 2018, presented by Annex Wealth Management and sponsored in part by eCourtReporters.com and Associated Builders and Contractors of Wisconsin on WTMJ. Now, here's your host, Jeff Wagner. It's Insight 2018, so very glad to have you with us. Um, This November, voters will get to decide whether they want six more years of Tammy Baldwin as their senator or make a choice between one of the Republican candidates. Very heated, contested primary going on right now, and we're very pleased to be joined by one of those candidates, Kevin Nicholson. Kevin, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. You have an extremely interesting background, kind of non-traditional, at least for a politician, at least at your age. Tell everybody about that. Sure. Um, so I'm uh, from Milwaukee. And is that all you wanted to know? Is well, there I think else? there's some more stuff. Okay, there. there's some other stuff. So I was raised in southeastern Wisconsin. I, uh, I headed off to the University of Minnesota for college where I met my wife, which is actually the most momentous thing that happened in college. But the thing that you probably heard of is in 1999, I was elected national president of the College Democrats of America, which is not the standard background for a Republican <laughs> senatorial uh, candidate. And it's a huge applause line at Republican events all across this state, <laughs> as you can imagine. Um, but the reality is I came from a family of Democrats, and I was uh, particularly influenced by my grandfather, who was a lifelong FDR Democrat, and he used to impress upon me in our time together in the weekends his belief that the Democrat Party was there for the working man. He was a lifelong construction worker, union guy. I had to get involved, and that started with that, that role in Washington to actually see that that Democrat Party never really existed. I saw a party which was focused on separating us by our race, class, gender, ethnicity, whatever they could do to separate Americans in order to try and win elections. And to my mind, that was not a good idea. I was only 21 years old. I didn't know everything, but I certainly saw that in a country of 300 plus million people, that didn't make a whole lot of sense. We don't all look the same. We don't all come from the same place. And so it was enough for me to start thinking as a young person. And we, frankly, we need a lot of young people to start thinking about this stuff critically. From there, um, I'll tell you, I had not yet joined the Marine Corps, but when I told people in the Democrat Party I intended to, they, had a, they looked at me like I was crazy. And so I just got away from politics. I got away from Washington. I ran a newspaper for a while. I went out to Wyoming. I worked as a cowboy because that's what you do after you run a newspaper, <laughs> or so I thought. Uh, But boy, two jobs that uh, kicked me in the butt, toughened me up, taught me common sense, all the things that are conservatism, like, you know, make a payroll, make a hard decision, see the way agriculture works as a business. It's a hard way to make a living. And it made me more conservative, as you would expect. The next step was coming back to uh, school, finishing up, getting married to my wife, Jessie, joining the Marine Corps and serving from 04 to 09. Um, I fought in Iraq in 07. I fought in Afghanistan in 2008 and 2009. And I'll tell you, those, those deployments had a huge, huge impact on me, as did just the Marine Corps in general. I was in Al-Ambar, and I was there during the troop surge, and I saw things go from bad to good. At the same time, I saw Democrat politicians like Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, and if you remember Bill Richardson, were running around stateside, frankly lying about the progress we had made in that surge. 
And to my mind, that was a no-go. It was unacceptable. I've been out of politics for years, but I knew full well that their lies were encouraging the enemy to continue to fight and kill Americans. And so as I came back between my deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, I donated to the Republican nominee. I put up signs before I went to Afghanistan. And my goal was to try and help a person I thought would be a better commander-in-chief than Barack Obama because I saw in him all the problems I had seen in the Democratic Party when I was involved in the late 90s. So to me, that was going to be my commander-in-chief in combat in Afghanistan. As it was, Barack Obama won. That night before I actually... Um, shipped to Afghanistan, I got that news. I also got the news that one of my best buddies was killed by an IED in Afghanistan. And I was about to go to Afghanistan to lead a counter IED team to, to basically mitigate the IED threat. It was a tough day. Um, but one of the things the Marine Corps taught me is, just like everything else in life, one foot in front of the other. You have to keep moving forward, and I did. So I went on that deployment. I led a team, as I mentioned. Our whole mission was to take away the IED threat. I had incredibly brave members of that team that could walk up on a bomb and disarm it. And our whole goal was to find those bomb makers and get them off the battlefield, and we did. We mitigated that threat. Let me just say this quick, and it's, it's direct to the point of why it's so important to beat Tammy Baldwin. We found Iranian-made IED components in Afghanistan. My team did. I've seen them. Tammy Baldwin is one of the first United States senators to sign on to the Iran deal. The Iran deal put cash in foreign currencies on to cargo planes and shipped it to a state sponsor of terror that was actively killing Americans in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that is something I will hold Tammy Bowen accountable for because she supported that policy at a time where she no doubt knew what the Iranian government was doing to Americans. Now, I left Afghanistan in 2009. Later, Barack Obama got up and gave a speech, which many of you probably remember, in which he, at West Point, of all places, publicly announced a troop drawdown and let that settle in a bit. He basically handed to the enemy our strategy, our plan. And unequivocally, I will tell you, I've lost both family and friends in Afghanistan. That speech encouraged the enemy to continue to fight us and kill us. That's the foreign policy that Tammy Baldwin supports, and that is the foreign policy that I will hold her accountable for. Going forward, I left Afghanistan. I did a joint degree in graduate school at Harvard and Dartmouth. I wanted to meet a bunch of snobby people and drive myself into debt. So two great places to do it. Um, also, an incredible place to test the assumptions of so-called world experts. You know, people say, how do you prepare yourself for the Senate? Stretch yourself. Put yourself in environments and places where you have to solve unsolvable problems, right? Places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Go to world experts, pressure test their plans, and then come out understanding that credentials never take the place of common sense because they don't. No one is ever going to slap a degree from Harvard or anywhere else on the table from me and convince me that up is down and down is up. And that's a big problem in Congress, because a lot of folks are getting tricked. That's how you end up with legislation like Obamacare, in which people introduced a new entitlement, which was going to save money. And of course, it never could. Those are the kind of problems you need actual members of the Senate, the actual senators themselves, like Ron Johnson, who can see through that garbage, understand the math, and then stand up and make a case that just because politicians say it is, it is not. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about some specific issues sure. then. Um, one of the big issues that, of course, people are focusing on now is the whole question of, of gun control. Um, let's talk about some specifics. How about universal background checks? Right now, if you're a federally licensed firearms dealer and somebody buys a gun from you, you have to run a background check. If 
the person is a private seller, you don't. Would you support universal background checks? I would not, but I would support this. I would support taking the background checks that currently exist in law and making sure that, that information is appropriately shared as law dictates. What we have seen already in the case of Florida, we've seen this in a number of cases with a number of shootings. Um, this was a case uh, certainly in Texas where the Air Force member went into a, uh, a church and shot up innocent people. Um, the Air Force was dictated by law to have shared various things from his uh, military record that should have preempted him from actually being able to purchase. So what I'd like to see is the existing background checks that are already in legislation executed properly. Going further, going further and actually mitigating the threat, let's talk about the fact we should entertain the idea of a, a shooting task force, which includes both federal uh, authorities and state authorities that are actually there to take all the information that's apparently being missed by a combination of local law enforcement and the FBI, collate that, and identify actual threats. Now, that's not me tweeting out something about a ban on Twitter, which so many on the left are eager to do, knowing full well it will never happen. But that is something that could actually mitigate a threat. What I worry about in real time when it comes to these shooting and these violence issues are all the elements of society that used to exist to keep people safe and to keep them close to family, right? If you think about our, our nation, just a stone's throw ago, right, like 70 years ago, chances are quite likely you'd grow up and live in the same town as your family. Chances are you'd attend the same church on Sunday. Chances are you'd be part of civic institutions and organizations in your community where people would know you and where they would know those that needed extra help and extra watching. All that has changed in society. People are living thousands of miles away from family. Those civic institutions have receded. The church has receded from our life. And now you have a situation where people that are mentally ill or evil or both are operating in between the lines. And that's why this threat in many ways has become so much more prevalent. That, there is no easy answer to that. I'll tell you Tammy, what, Kevin, let's stop it right there. Sure. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll pick it up with more gun control. I want to talk to you about immigration and Obamacare and all sorts of other stuff. Back in just a minute, you're listening to Insight 2018 from the Country Springs Hotel. Thank you. We now return to Insight 2018, presented by Annex Wealth Management and sponsored in part by eCourtReporters.com and Associated Builders and Contractors of Wisconsin on WTMJ. Now, here's your host, Jeff Wagner. Welcome back. It's Insight 2018. We're joined by Republican Senate candidate Kevin Nicholson. Kevin, I want to go through a series of other issues just to try to draw out where you are on issues and maybe compare and contrast to, to your opponent. Um, would you support a ban on various types of semi-automatic rifles like the AR-15s? Uh, no, I wouldn't. And I don't think that gets to the root of the problem here. The reality is that we have hundreds of millions of weapons in our country. Uh, you can access them either through legal sale or black market. The reality is the Second Amendment exists to allow each of us the ability to protect our life and liberty. It's not there for hunting and recreation, folks. It's there because our founders understood that intrinsically you, just in the same way that our Constitution basically recognizes the value of your life and your individual liberties, the Constitution also says that you have the ability to protect it. And nobody, there's no one on earth you can consign that to. The police have a responsibility to keep the peace. They can't, when it comes down to it, necessarily um, help you keep your life. 
And so what I'd like to do, again, I think this is a more complex problem that we have than simply saying ban this, ban that. The reality is if you understand how to use a weapon and you have the desire to use it illegally, you will. We have to think about how to mitigate these threats and actually stop people from, from conducting acts of violence. Let's switch gears. Let's talk about immigration. Broad subject, but one of the immediate problems is are the dreamers, the people who came into this country illegally, but as children and have remained, do you support a path for citizenship for those dreamers? The first step in immigration has to be a block to illegal immigration for a number of different reasons. One, it is poisoned the well politically, certainly in our country and immigration. The American people have made it so clear. No matter what their background is, they have been crystal clear in saying, we love immigrants. We're all for immigration, but we don't want illegal immigration. And so what they have been tearing their hair out now for decades and saying to their politicians is stand up and do something about illegal immigration. And then we can have an intelligent go-forward plan, which is economically sustainable for both the American people and new immigrants. And what do I mean by that? I mean that our government is looking intelligently at what are the skill sets we're trying to bring to this nation. Not all PhDs, certainly it's people with trade capabilities. And toggle those numbers up and down on an annual basis based on like who we need in this country. Yeah, but I don't mean to interrupt, but let's, but let's talk about the dreamers. 800,000 people in this country now, do we deport them? Do we figure out something to do? I mean, that's a real problem that we've got to deal with. Well, I'd argue it's probably a lot more people than that, right. but I mean, let's say that's the baseline number. They, that is part of that second step solution. Again, first block illegal immigration, build the wall, build the fence, whatever that obstacle is that needs to happen. And then those dreamers become part of a process to path to legalization that includes any new immigrants that, that are part of a sustainable, intelligent, go-forward plan. In other words, their numbers count against new immigration numbers as well. And you roll all that forward in a plan that makes sense for the American people. Do you support the president's plan to build a border wall? Yes. And again, I think you're never going to get to the second step politically because the American people are going to be too angry about this because they want to see an end to illegal immigration. So if you want to open up the potential to have an intelligent plan going forward to put people on a, stat, uh, a path to, to legal status as part of an immigration plan, first thing you have to do is stop illegal immigration. If you were elected to the United States Senate January of, of next year, would you vote to repeal the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare? Yes, what remains of it. Right. Yes, and it's changing it on a daily basis, obviously, with the repeal of the individual mandate. And here's why. Take every problem that exists and, all, and has existed in American health care for quite some time. Lack of tri price transparency, lack of consumer choice, and lack of um, portability of health care dollars, meaning you actually get to keep your health care dollars and health care savings accounts. Obamacare exacerbated each of those problems. That's why you see uh, providers dropping out of markets. That's why you see insurance premiums skyrocketing. So what do we need to do? The go forward isn't necessarily a new quote unquote system. It is a series of intelligent legislation and regulations that encourage price transparency, consumer choice, and again, allowing people, incentivizing them to save their own healthcare dollars and spend them intelligently. The reason Cadillacs don't cost $3 million is that none of us would buy them. But when you go into a healthcare provider, you typically have no idea what something costs before you procure it. Likewise, someone else is likely paying for it, which creates the classic principal agent problem where one group is paying for it, another group is using it, no one knows what it costs. And of course, we have aggregate expendi or expenditures exploding. That has to stop 
or healthcare is going to subsume our entire federal government. Let's talk a little bit about the, the politics of, of 2018. Donald Trump won Wisconsin in 2016, first Republican to win Wisconsin in a presidential race since Ronald Reagan in 1984. The dynamics have changed, perhaps, since November of 2016. Is President Trump going to be a net asset or a net liability on the ballot when you run this year? Look, I think the president's agenda is the right agenda for the people of Wisconsin, and that's at every turn. I think that the tax reform package is pro-growth. I think it's going to help growth in our state and help open up an opportunity for the people of Wisconsin. I think the president has made it clear it was the Senate that failed on the repeal of Obamacare, but the president has made it clear he understands this is a priority for the American people and is going to continue to push it going forward. And the president gets as well, too, that immigration is a two-part fix. One, stop illegal immigration. Two, have an intelligent plan going forward that deals with, among other things, dreamers that the Democrats, frankly, have abandoned. And so as he reiterates this agenda over and over again, and it's clear this is an agenda that actually opens up opportunity for the people of our state, I think that's absolutely a net asset. You are, I I think it would be fair to say that you are kind of the non-establishment Republican candidate of of the the two candidates. I think that is fair to say. Okay. Is that going to be, in 2018, a a net asset or a net liability, given the fact that I think it's probably quite likely that, at least in the primary, your opponent's going to have the the endorsements of the majority of county chairmen and and what I will call the Republican infrastructure? It's going to be a huge asset to be an outsider. And if you look at the history of our state recently in federal elections, it's pretty clear what the people of Wisconsin are saying. When it comes to the two-time election of Ron Johnson and Donald Trump, Our state is saying clear as day. If this is a federal election and you want to go to Washington, you better come from outside the system, have a credible background that says you actually have solutions and that you're willing to do it differently. I've already limited myself to two terms in the United States Senate. On my honor as a Marine, I will not run for more than two terms as a United States Senator. I can say that today, and I mean it. What does that do that changes my incentives? I am not looking to make the Senate a career. I'm looking to go there to solve the problems, just like I do in business today, the problems of this country, identify them, provide a solution. And if in the end of the day, the people of our state say, hey, we're going to send you back for another six years, that's great. If they don't, and I do a good six-year Senate term where I actually put our country on a better trajectory because I dealt with our many problems ranging from our debt to health care to immigration and beyond, that's worth it. I mean, folks, I did five years in the Marine Corps. I gave the Marine Corps something, it gave me a lot more back. That was a good deal and it was good for my country. That's what I want out of the Senate. Go there and do the right thing by the country. And at the end of the day, if the country's in a better position, that's a good six year term. We cannot have folks that are going there just to be there. This election is not about me becoming a senator. It is about you, it is about your families, and it is about your future. And anyone running for the Senate now that doesn't understand that, like Tammy Baldwin, needs to go. We'll end it there. Kevin Nicholson, candidate for the GOP nomination. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. This is Insight 2018, presented by Annex Wealth Management and sponsored in part by eCourtReporters.com and Associated Builders and Contractors of Wisconsin on WTMJ. Now, here's your host, Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Insight 2018. I am now joined by Republican State Senator and Republican Senate candidate Leah Vukmir. Leah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me today, and I really do appreciate you accommodating my not being able to be uh, with the audience today. Well, we're glad to have you. Let's start off. 
Why do you want to be a U.S. Senator? Look, Jeff, it's really important. The stakes are so high for our country. I want to take the Wisconsin way to Washington. That means standing up for what you believe in and getting things done. And when I look at what's happening in Washington right now, there just aren't enough principled conservative Republicans in that U.S. Senate to make sure that we're making America great again. And I want to join that effort because I have a proven record of doing it here in Wisconsin. Well, we'll talk about your record in just a minute, but let's talk about some of the issues that I know you're addressing on the campaign trail. Obviously, big issue is gun control. Let's start off. What is your idea of gun control? Do we need it? Well, first and foremost, I you know it's tragic and what happened uh, in Florida and so many of the other situations across our country. My heart goes out to the families of all of those who are affected by this, but I think it's very dangerous to take it uh, the immediate emotion of a situation like that and to rush in and do anything to affect our Second Amendment rights. So from my perspective, I will always look at any call for gun control with balancing our Second Amendment rights for the vast majority of law-abiding citizens who are taking that right very seriously. And, and the fact of the matter is that there, no matter how many laws we create, there will be people who will always find a way around those laws. Let's talk about a couple specific issues. One of the things that's being pushed is universal background checks. Right now, if you buy a firearm from a licensed, federally licensed dealer, they run a background check. If you buy it from a private citizen, no background check. Where are you on universal background checks? I don't support universal background checks. I, I just don't. I, I think that that is too much of an infringement, and the vast majority of law-abiding citizens, as I said before, if I were to sell my gun to you, um, I'm going to be very cautious about who I'm selling that gun to because I know um, that I, uh, you're a stable person, right. and I'm not going to give it to somebody who I don't think is stable. How about the call to ban sales of semi-automatic firearms like AR-15s? Where are you on that issue? Again, when you call these guns semi-automatic and all of these titles assault, you have to be very careful. The definitions that are used are so broad that it could encompass, uh, again, weapons that law-abiding citizens use for sporting and for hunting. And so I'm going to be very careful when anyone calls for these types of bans to be understanding exactly what they're asking, what is the definition, and again, balancing that with the fact that law-abiding citizens, the vast majority of them, take this right very seriously. When there appears to be a split, even in the Republican Party, over questions about arming teachers in schools. Where are you on that issue? Look, I believe it's a local control issue. You know me, Jeff. I've always believed in local control. And if a school district, a school decides that that is what um, they want to do, and if there's a teacher who feels comfortable and uh, why can't teachers, um, I'm not saying that if somebody doesn't want to, I would never say a teacher who does not want to or who has never held a weapon or doesn't know how to shoot should not be put in a position. But look, our kids are sitting ducks in these situations. Uh, these are soft targets and criminals know that and they prey upon these areas. So I believe that um, our local schools should be the best people to make those decisions. And if a local school district wanted to arm teachers under appropriate situations, you'd be in favor of that? Absolutely. Let's switch gears. Let's talk a little bit about immigration, because that's a huge issue now. President Trump made a huge campaign issue about his desire to build a wall along the border. So far, Congress hasn't funded that. 
Would you support that if you were in the Senate? Absolutely. First and foremost, we must secure our border. I have said this over and over again, and as I travel the many miles I do across our state, it is still the number one issue that people are concerned about. We are a nation of laws. We have to uphold those laws. And first and foremost, we can't talk about the rest of uh, immigration reform until we seal that border. And that's um, an issue that's very near and dear to my heart as well. I'm the daughter of Greek immigrants. I spent a, a childhood um, as watching aunts and uncles come over to this country. Right. They came here the legal way. I helped them study for their naturalization and citizenship test. We have to have a legal process for people to become citizens. Well, let, let's follow up on that. A lot of controversy about DACA, the, the so-called dreamers. I think a lot of us believe that the order that started that from President Obama is illegal. And I think President Trump has said, okay, this needs to be a congressional matter. Um, do you support a pathway for citizenship, say, for those 800,000 people that came into this country illegally as children? First, we have to build and secure the, water, the, the border. And once we do that, then we can talk about DACA. We can talk about chain migration. We can talk about all the other issues um, that face us in terms of uh, immigration. But first, we must build and secure that border. I think if you talk to a lot of people in Congress, what they would tell you is that one of the big regrets so far is a frustration with an inability to repeal Obamacare. Um, Leah Vukmir, you get elected to the U.S. Senate. You take office next January. Where are you going to be on the Affordable Care Act? Well, where I've always been and where people in the state of Wisconsin know I've been, I've called very strongly for the repeal and replace of Obamacare. Jeff, you know I'm a nurse. I've continued to work as a nurse through my years in the legislature because I think it's really important to be a citizen legislator. I understand the complex issues facing health care and health care reform. We've taken initial positive steps uh, through the tax bill in terms of repealing the individual mandate, but we need to continue and do more. It's the simple way to talk about how you uh, replace Obamacare is that you need an army of consumers with information and tools with which to make decisions about their health care. That means you and I and citizens all around have to have the ability to have control over their health care dollars, but we also have to have the ability to understand how much it costs. So when you walk in to your car for car repairs, you, uh, you understand what it costs for an oil change. You know what it costs for a tire rotation. Um, but in healthcare, we don't, and therefore that leads to an overutilization. So we need to um, create the transparency. We need to create a market where one doesn't exist, um, and we have to continue to work on deregulating a lot of the areas in healthcare that are really place a burden and add to the cost of healthcare overall. You've been in the legislature since 2002, yep. in the state senate since 2010. Um, Wisconsin, through Badger Care and through some of the special pools that they had, were Wisconsinites better off? with health care before the Affordable Care Act or after? Before, no doubt about it. And that's one of the reasons why I fought so hard against it and why um, we need to bring it back to the state. Um, I'm a big believer in federalism. The states know much better how to take care of their own. And we were able to take care of all of our people in need without setting up an exchange, without taking the Medicaid expansion money. And I'm really um, proud that the governor and the rest of my team listened to my counsel on that and understood that you know, we know how to solve our problems. We have a great system of health care. But now we're dealing with you know, a situation where the Affordable Health Care Act is not affordable to most citizens in Wisconsin. In some counties, there's only one uh, insurance provider. That's wrong. There's no competition. It only escalates to the cost of health care. It does not lead to competition, which will lower the cost of health care. 
One of the signature accomplishments of this Congress, I think, would be passing tax reform. Where were you on the tax reform bill that was passed, and do we need to do more? Well, we always need to do more, absolutely. And I was grateful that Senator Ron Johnson you know, held out and made the bill better, and that's because he understood how to do that. Uh, understanding the legislative process is important. Um, but look, as I'm traveling around the state of Wisconsin, people are very happy with um, having that extra money in their pocket. Um, it's not breadcrumbs to them. It's real money and real dollars. But that doesn't mean we sit back. We need to continue. We've done a good job of that in Wisconsin, you know, $8 billion in tax cuts to the good citizens of this state. And we have surpluses now that we're giving back to people. I, I know how to do that. I've done it. I want to do that in Washington. Tell you what, we're going to take a very quick break. We're going to talk about a couple more issues and then a little bit about your background and how you beat Tammy Baldwin in the fall. Stick around. We'll be right back. This is Insight 2018. Jeff Wagner with Senator Leah Vukmir. You're listening to Insight 2018, presented by Annex Wealth Management and sponsored in part by eCourtReporters.com and Associated Builders and Contractors of Wisconsin on WTMJ. Now, here's your host, Jeff Wagner. Welcome back. Insight 2018, Jeff Wagner, Senator Leah Vukmir. Leah, let's talk a little bit about your background. You're a nurse, elected to the state legislature in 2002, state senate in 2010. How did politics come into your life? Well, I always say I was never, I never got into politics out of ambition, but out of circumstance. I'm a concerned mom. I was concerned about how they were teaching reading in my daughter's classroom, and it let, led me in an odyssey of school board meetings and writing letters to the editor and becoming involved in the civic process. And the next thing I knew, I was running for Scott Walker's seat in the state assembly when he became Milwaukee County Executive. So it was, it's been quite a journey, but it's really been um, a, a journey of pa uh, a passion of mine, a passion of service. Well, th there have been some some tolls, I know. I mean, Act 10 and the huge controversy around that, that was tough on a lot of Republican legislators, and I know it was tough on you. Well, and I was a freshman in the Senate at that time, and um, it was uh, definitely a trying time, but I uh, believe it, we did the right thing. And, you know, yes, we had a lot of um, death threats. I had specific death threats. The governor, the lieutenant governor, the governor's family. Um, we walked in and out of that building with armed security. Uh, we left through secret tunnelways that I didn't even know existed and the building was loaded with uh, uh, protesters inside and outside and uh, you know, it really tested your resolve to stand up for your principles and it's something I uh, learned a lot from. I, I was there from the beginning. It was just bringing everybody together and making sure that we uh, stood together uh, for the right principles and I'm grateful that the governor uh, was so strong and we did the right thing. Were you surprised at the extent of the reaction and the hostility that that, that legislation generated? I was. Uh but, I, you know, again, I believe in people's right to express themselves. And the First Amendment, it's so important if you hold true to um, our Constitution. But it, it crossed the line in many times when, you know, I had to sit and worry about, you know, whether, where my children were, if they were going to come home on the weekend. People were patrolling our house. You, you never knew who was going to be at your front door. You know, that's one that crosses the line and, and, and makes people question, why am I running? And I think it uh, potentially could have had an effect that it would steer people away from service, but I'm incredibly amazed by the number of uh, wonderful legislators who, because of what we went through, have decided to step up and be a part of that and, and to stand for principles, and we've made a difference in Wisconsin as a result of that. To, to the 
point of being surprised about how some things happen. Um, a number of years ago, when Scott Walker was the county executive, he asked for an investigation into whether or not some money was being taken from a veterans event. That morphed into this giant John Doe investigation. It was revealed last summer, I guess, that emails from you, hundreds, maybe thousands, had been seized without your knowledge, including personal emails of conversations between you and your children. How did you feel when you found out about that? Look, I was, you know, mortified. I mean, no parent should have to pick up the phone call, call their daughter in New York and say, look, we are part of a John Doe 3 investigation where 150 of our emails were put in a file, a separate file. Uh, labeled opposition research. Now, th these aren't state emails. These are personal emails. Our state emails are subject to open records requests, but my personal emails were taken along with emails of other legislators, uh, 500,000 altogether. It's wrong. This is the arm of government ha was weaponized to be political. And it, this isn't America. We don't, this isn't how it should be in America. And I was uh, very upset. Um, and um, Have you ever received either an explanation or an apology for how those emails ended up never, getting seized? Never, never, and I don't expect to get one. And there is no certainty for any of us um, when and where those emails will emerge. Uh, it's um, really very devastating to think that government could be in our lives in that manner. And uh, I have. You know, glad that we abolished the Government Accountability Board. It was my piece of legislation. We fought very hard uh, to make sure that th that doesn't happen again. Let, let's, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the politics of 2018. President Trump was the first Republican to win Wisconsin since Ronald Reagan's second term in 1984. I think surprised a, a lot of people with that. Times have changed since November of 2016. Is, is President Trump going to be a net asset or a net liability on the ballot when, when you're running on the ballot this year? I still think he will be an asset. As I travel around this state, people are very happy with President Donald Trump. Uh, they look at his record of what he has been able to accomplish. And yes, is it the most orth orthodox way? No, I think we can agree that he does things sometimes in an unorthodox way. Um, but the bottom line is he says what he's gonna do and he follows through and he does it. And that's what we have done here in Wisconsin. That's what I've done in my service to this state. And I think that's what people are looking for, leaders who will stand up, say what they're gonna do and follow through. You know, he, he comes with an outside outsider experience, which is one of the reasons that, you know, my background as a nurse has been helpful to me in the legislature, because you need to be able to listen to people, um, as nurses do, solve problems and fix things. And I've applied those principles. And you look at Donald Trump, and that's how he looks at the process as well. It's how Ron Johnson has looked at the process as somebody coming uh, from manufacturing, where you identify problems and you try to fix those problems. And you know what? If they don't work, you've got to retool it. And in healthcare, sometimes those decisions are split-second decisions. One of the things that they talk about a lot is an enthusiasm gap. You know, we've seen that in various elections. 2008, Democrats were motivated to vote. 2010, Republicans were. A lot of the pundits seem to think that there will be an enthusiasm gap. Democrats are going to be more in inclined to want to turn out and vote against whoever has an R after their name. Are you worried about that? No, I, and I know that people are, and I know that the left is you know, clamoring for that to be the case because of the situation in the 10th Senate District. That was definitely a wake-up call, as the governor called it, but I, I will tell you, as I'm traveling around the state, people are enthused. They want to see Governor Walker reelected, Lieutenant Governor uh, Becky Clayfish, uh, our Attorney General Brad 
Janet Schimmel. And, you know, of course, this is a very important Supreme Court race for Mike Skrunach. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it, and I believe that people will be there. Okay, so far the U.S. Senate race for the Republican nomination is what we would call a binary choice. It's you, your opponent is Kevin Nicholson. Why are you a better choice to take on Tammy Baldwin in the fall than Kevin Nicholson? I'm a proven, consistent conservative. People know my track record, they can trust me. I appreciate Kevin's service to our country. I'm a military mom, my son's a first lieutenant and he is now an army ranger. And I appreciate that service. Beyond that, he will have to prove to the people of Wisconsin what his track record as a conservative, mine is out there. People know where I stand. They know that I will defend the unborn. They know that I will defend the Second Amendment. They know that I will secure our borders and call for the building of the wall because I've supported law enforcement in this state. I've supported um, our first and second and our pro-life uh, agenda here in Wisconsin. Leah, you often get labeled as, as a as a creature of the Republican establishment. You, you've been around in office since 2002. You have endorsements from lots and lots of the heavyweights in the state Republican Party. Is this a good year to be an establishment Republican candidate? Well, if you call me an establishment Republican or if you call me a rhino, uh, it's, it's a bit of a joke. And I'm sure that, you know, all the years of being labeled by the left as being so right wing, it's kind of humorous to hear suddenly now I'm a rhino. The fact of the matter is Republicans in Wisconsin are not establishment Republicans. We're activist Republicans, and, and that's clearly seen by what we've been able to accomplish and how we've turned our state around in the last eight years. So I think it's a bit laughable, and I think it's a bit stretch, and it may apply in other states, but it clearly shows a lack of understanding of Wisconsin grassroots, and that's how we're going to win this race, uh, based on the strength of our ideas, proven results, and the strong gra grassroots support around my campaign. Senator Leah Vukmir, thanks so much for joining us at Insight thanks, 2018. Jeff. Appreciate it. You betcha. We now return to Insight 2018, presented by Annex Wealth Management and sponsored in part by eCourtReporters.com and Associated Builders and Contractors of Wisconsin on WTMJ. Now, here's your host, Jeff Wagner. Welcome back. It's Insight 2018. We're at the Country Springs Hotel. Our next guest is, I think, well-known to pretty much everybody. Glenn Grothman, who is the congressman from this area, Glenn and I, gosh, Glenn, we, we, we go back a ways. We were, you were at Homestead High School. I was at Nicolet High School back in the day. Right. I think, when did we graduate from high school? Was it 1985 or was it 1992? <laughs> I can't remember. Uh, yeah, something like that. Something like that. <laughs> but Glenn and I, seriously, we used to debate. Glenn was on the Homestead High School debate team, and, and I was on the Nicolet High School debate team. And look at us now. I'm doing a radio show. And, you know, he's a congressman. How cool is that, huh? That is cool. They, they, they said they would, we, we wouldn't make anything of ourselves. Right. Glenn, let, I wanna, I'm so glad you could be here because I wanted to get a federal perspective on, on what's going on in Washington just let me ask you a broad question to start off with. What is the mood in Washington like now? Well, I think coming out of the omnibus bill, and, you know, we kind of flew out right after we passed it, but I assume, at least on the Republican side, they're getting a lot of real negative feedback, and they deserve to get negative feedback. Uh, so hopefully when we come back, there will be a feeling that we have to do something, because I think there was a feeling among some people in Washington that the tax cut was enough, we did the tax cut, now let's go home. And there's more work to do, that's for sure. And I, I think a lot of our a lot of people are disappointed in us, and, and rightfully they should be. I hope they take up welfare reform. That's my hope, but we, we had better do something else. How much of a distraction is some of the stuff that's going on? 
the, the highest rated 60 minute show in 10 years was uh, featuring a, a former pornographic movie star who says she had a one-night stand with the president back in 2006. And that's what everybody's talking about, it, 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 at least if, if you believe the chattering heads. Is that a distraction to getting stuff done in your job? We never talk about it. I mean, this fringe stuff, uh, you know, Trump had hired a, a person who, who beat his wife, fired him as soon afterwards. This type of stuff, when I look at the TV, dominates the mainstream media. But we never talk about it, to be honest. We're focused on the federal issues that we're supposed to pass legislation on. We're focused on the budget. We're focused on welfare reform. We're focused on DACA. And whether it's in our committees or afterwards, if we go out socially, that's what we talk about. Obviously, somebody, you know, uh, the the 60 Minutes thing happened uh, after we broke up, and maybe somebody would, you know, say something about it the way anybody in the audience would say something about it. But it's not a distraction at all as far as getting our job done. And I think, quite frankly, um, for a lot of the American public, this sort of thing was kind of baked in the cake. The, the, the fact that we've elected as a president a guy who was a multi-millionaire, billionaire, playboy. So we shouldn't be surprised at this stuff. Right. I, I think uh, people who voted for him looked at the good and looked at the bad, and they expected this to be some of the bad. And uh, it doesn't. It, it maybe disappoints them, but doesn't surprise them, and it doesn't affect what Congress does. Let me ask you this. You're, you're running for re-election this year. Congressmen are up every two years. Um, we, we have both, Glenn, seen wave elections, 2008, Democrats win everything, 2010, 2014, big years for Republicans. Um, is, is all the, the collateral stuff going on with pres- the president, is that going to help or hurt Republicans in, in November? I think it hurts them a little bit because, you know, uh, when Donald Trump tweets some things, and see, I understand I've only had really one conversation with Donald Trump since he was elected, and I used that conversation to try to tell him, don't tweet so much. Uh, <laughs> I think it hurts it hurts him a little bit as effectiveness because he can't kind of bully Congress into getting things done. Uh, but otherwise, this sort of thing, I think it kind of enrages the left and it motivates them because whenever he tweets something that's a little bit inappropriate, they say, see, we were right, we were right. And uh, that's the energy that's going to be a problem. Now, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion this is going to be a problem. You've got to remember, under normal circumstances, Republicans do better in an off year than a presidential year. In general, incumbents do better if the economy is doing well. The economy hasn't done better. Uh, so I think you have those things going on as well. I think the examples of years that went against the, the new party in power were two big Democrat ones, you know, two years into Obama and Obamacare and two years into Clinton with the almost Hillary care. Right. Um, as you look at your time in Congress, what would you say is your, your biggest accomplishment? Well, I think I had an imprint on the tax bill, and I had uh, somewhat of an imprint because I used to do taxes years ago. And like any legislative body, be it the state legislature or the U.S. Congress, again and again, legislators are asked to vote on things they know nothing about. That's the nature of the job. But because I used to do income taxes, I think it, it helped me, and I think they listened to me a little more than some of the people who didn't have that familiarity with taxes. What's been your biggest frustration? Uh, my biggest frustration is how difficult it is to get things done because of the 60-vote rule in the Senate. 
I mean, everybody out there thinks that the Republicans are in charge. But when you look at, for example, the omnibus bill, we don't pass spending bills with just Republicans voting on it. Everything on that omnibus bill needs the stamp of approval by Chuck Schumer. And uh, it kind of reminds me of the state legislature being there in the in the late 90s where you had Scott Jensen and Chuck Kuala arguing over a budget and, and both those guys had, had to sign off on something. And that's what's going on right now. And I think in general there's also a lack of urgency among some, including some, some Republicans who've been there around have been around there a long time. And that's very frustrating because to me, when we won the election two Novembers ago, it was supposed to be like when Scott won the election in 2010. It was supposed to be, we're going to hit the ground running, we're going to save America. And I think for too many congressmen up there, it's just another year. And it shouldn't have been just another year. One of the big issues dominating the news, of course, is is gun control following what, what happened in Parkland a couple weeks ago. Uh, do you think there is going to be movement in Congress on universal background checks or ban on AR-15s or things like that? Um, I don't think so. I hope a lot of the focus is on things that we could have controlled without attacking the Second Amendment. I mean, they had a policy down there in Broward County, as I'm sure you've gone over with your listeners, in which, believe it or not, prosecutors were like saying it was a bad thing to charge young people with crimes. I mean, we had this uh, uh, Nicholas Cruz guy who had had police called on him over 30 times. They never charged him with a crime. They could have charged him with felonies. And eventually, the old department, or Obama's Department of Education, picked up on that and thought it's something we should emulate. Now, you're a former prosecutor, Jeff, and I don't think, well, maybe Milwaukee County, but most counties around here, certainly in Waukesha County, it would not be a winning strategy for a judge or prosecutor to say, I'm not going to prosecute any criminals. But apparently, Broward County was kind of liberal, and they adopted that thing. And there are a lot of, quite frankly, my, my fellow congressmen who think we have a problem in this country, uh, too many people in prison, and the reason you have too many people in prison is we're charging them with crimes. They don't realize the problem is we have too many people committing crimes. <laughs> but I, I hope Congress focuses on that sort of thing. I think there are going to be some bills, including one I'm introducing, that are going to pass in which we provide a little bit of assistance. <coughs> to local schools as far as uh, protecting the schools. See, I love talking to you, Glenn, because if, if the Congress thing, if you ever decide to bail on that, you could do my job. You'd be great. You'd just be great at it. But by the way, you mentioned the AR-15. We have been around long enough that I remember gun control in whatever decade that is that we went to high school. At the time, they just talked about banning handguns. Right. Because the left said, you know, why do you need a You don't need a handgun to shoot a beer. Let's shoot, shoot a to, to shoot a deer. Uh, so we should ban the handguns and just allow the long guns to exist. Now that we had a horrific action with the long guns, the same type of people who 40 years ago were saying just ban the handguns are saying, well, everybody keep the handguns. We just thought of ban the long guns. I, I've asked a couple of our guests the same question. Um, the Dreamers. Let's talk immigration for, for just a minute before we wrap up. 800-plus thousand people in this country brought in illegally by their parents as minors. They're now in this country. Um, do we need to find a path for citizenship for those people? Well, there'll be a path towards legality. But the big problem is we've got to remember not all those people are good people. We don't have to accept people who aren't good people. And we should never allow this to happen again. Our immigration laws are a mess. We should clear them up so that in the future every immigrant is a good immigrant. And right now, to a certain extent, because of special interests out there, they're willing to go with a policy of, we'll take whoever sneaks across the border, and if 70% are good and 30% are bad, 
We'll accept the 30% ban. We should not pass a DACA bill. And there are plenty of friends those people have out there until the people who want to make the DACA people legal agree to a strong, good immigration law in the future, including a law that means no special preferences for those people who are coming into their under this country. We shouldn't continue along that path. Congressman Glenn Grothman, it is always a pleasure, my friend. Thanks for joining us tonight. Very good. <laughs> this is Insight 2018, presented by Annex Wealth Management and sponsored in part by eCourtReporters.com and Associated Builders and Contractors of Wisconsin on WTMJ. Now, here's your host, Jeff Wagner. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my very great pleasure to introduce the governor of the state of Wisconsin, Scott Walker. Governor Walker. Great to be with you. Thanks, everybody. Nice crowd out here. Yeah. Thanks, guys. And, and we didn't even give him liquor, you know? That's pretty just, good. Uh, didn't even give him liquor. Okay, Governor, before we get into the substance of the interview, let, let's start off. Let, let's, let's make a little bit of news. There's been... A lot of issue, a lot of controversy over the last week with regard to special elections to fill a vacant Senate seat and a vacant Assembly seat. Your original plan was let's just let this play out till the November elections. Dane County Judge ordered you to call special elections. There was talk about maybe a legislative solution or an appeal. What's going on? Uh, well, tomorrow morning I'm going to call a special election. It'll be for June 12th uh, for a special election to fill a vacancy in the state assembly and the state senate. Uh, we went through the legal process going forward, and it is amazing as to how far out-of-state liberals will go to push a meaningless process that's a waste of the taxpayers' money. But that should be a reminder to everyone who's looking ahead to the ballots this fall is if you want people who push meaningless things that cost the taxpayers money, go along with Eric Holder and the liberal Democrats who are pushing their agenda in this state. If you want people who are actually going to save your taxpayers money and spend it on things that mean something, then stick with Republicans. But going forward, I mean, think about this, Jeff. So we're going to call it. The election will be on June 12th. People will have from tomorrow until April 17th to circulate nomination papers. Now, now think about that date for a minute. On April 15th, people running this fall for the state assembly, for the state senate, and statewide office will be taking out nomination papers from April 15th, and they'll be due June 1st. So two days before uh, nomination papers are due for the special election, people will be taking them out for the fall, and the special election will be held 12 days after Nomination papers are due for the fall. So people will be running for a spot at the same time they'll be running for the fall election. That's why this is meaningless. The legislature will be adjourned. It is a waste of the taxpayers' money. And frankly, if I lived in those districts, I'd say forget about running in the special. Let's just focus on the fall when it actually means something, because that's when people are coming out. But I know they'll contest in both cases. So, so all these reports saying, I, I was reading some of the national publications. Here's Governor Walker again trying to deny 200,000 people or whatever the right to representation. Um, nothing to that. <laughs> No, I mean, in the end, the irony is, so the legislature is done with their business. The only thing they were considering was whether they'll come back or not, and I suppose they could, but by next week at the latest, they'll be done. So by the time the election is held in June 12th, not only will they be done after several months, June 12th will be two months after 
the nomination papers are due for the special election, and two months after, they already started taking out nomination papers for the fall elections. So you're going to spend potentially hundreds of millions of, or excuse me, hundreds of thousands of dollars, not hundreds of millions, hundreds of thousands of dollars on special elections in two different districts in two different parts of the state of Wisconsin so those people can turn around and a couple months later run for the real thing in the fall. Bottom line of it, that the law is a mess, right? And it does yeah, need to be cleared the, up, right? Well, and that's the part, right? It set aside whether what your politics are one way or the other. When I was in the assembly, and you mentioned the introduction, the old date used to be June 1st was the first day that you could take out nomination papers for state offices, and you'd have until the middle of July to get them in and, and turn them in. For whatever reason, years later, the legislature moved that back to April 15th, uh, so they finished their calendar before that. They were due by June 1st. And for whatever reason, at the time they made that change, they didn't correct that date that tied in that the judge pointed to. And you can disagree on that. I, I'm not into uh, commenting on the judge one way or the other. But I said, you can look at that date. But the reality is they didn't adjust it when they moved everything back. They didn't move the date for the special election back. So that's why you're stuck in this quagmire. The, the reason they had that was they thought if you were having a vacancy before a certain time, you should fill it. But in this case, it's missing the boat because the legislature's long gone by that point. Governor, let's let's look back at the last eight years, the, the accomplishments and may, maybe some of the, the tough times as well. Um, obviously, I think when people think of Scott Walker, we think of Act 10. Um, has Act 10 been a success? Huge success. Now, we have a reform dividend in this state because of what we had the courage to do. And I say we because it wasn't just me. It was a lot of lawmakers in both the Assembly and the Senate, those in the past. And I see a few in this room with me here today and a few others have joined us along the way who had the courage <laughs> Not just for the state, but I was once a local official. I, I remember the angst I had. Remember eight years ago when I was running for governor, Jim Doyle and the Democrats in the, in the state legislature cut money for schools. They cut money for municipalities. They cut money for the county government I was in. And they gave us absolutely no tools to deal with it. We've empowered local governments. And I only have the tools that have saved state and local government more than $5 billion since then. But more importantly, our schools, our local and our state governments can now hire and fire based on merit. They can pay based on performance. That means they can put the best and the brightest in the classroom and in local and state government offices. And that's exactly what we do to succeed anywhere outside of government. We should have been doing that for years in local and state government as well. So it's been a huge success just in that regard. But on top of that, those reforms have paid such a dividend uh, both on economic and fiscal reforms we enacted beyond just Act 10, that we've had, we've gone from a $3.6 billion budget deficit to having a budget surplus every single year we've been in office. It's why we've been able to reduce your tax burden cumulatively by more than $8 billion through the end of this budget and still put record amounts of actual dollars into K-12 education and other key priorities because the reforms are working. The, the concerns when Act 10 was being introduced and debated was that this was going to decimate public services, the public education system. As we look back now, seven years later, did that happen? 
Not by a long shot. I mean, look at it. Our, our schools continue, our students continue to have some of the best ACT scores in the country. We continue to be one of the top states in the nation for graduation rates. We have exceptional, great teachers. My kids went to Wauwatosa. In fact, a couple of my friends are from Wauwatosa. I think uh, Mido and Harmon might be here tonight uh, as well. Our kids all went together at Roosevelt and uh, Longfellow and Wauwatosa East High School. And I think of the great education our kids got there, like a lot of your kids did at public schools all across the state. And whether your kids go to public, private, charter, choice, or at home school, we wanted to make sure that every child in the state had access to great education. That's exactly what the case is here in the state of Wisconsin. We're one of the best states in America for education. The difference is, as Republicans, we actually believe if you spend money on education, it actually should be tied to performance for both student success and for building the workforce for the 21st century, not just pouring more money into political causes and educational bureaucracy. Do you think that message has gotten out? Well, I, I think it has to many. I mean, the, the, the challenge you get in this state, uh, I think overall, and that's why I think in this election that uh, even more so, I, I think about in the last 25 years of all the campaigns I've been involved in or helped people along with the way on, uh, as much as we've advanced in technology, I think this November, personal contact is going to have a larger impact than it's had in the last 25 years. And the reason I say that is I think a lot of people in society don't know what to believe anymore. They don't believe in institutions. And it's not just, you know, the president talks about fake news. I think it's across the political spectrum. I think it's not just those of us who lean center-right. I think it's across the political spectrum. On the Internet in particular, I tell my kids who are in their 20s now all the time, do not believe everything you read on the Internet, you know, on Facebook and Twitter. Your dad and really does not have horns and a tail. Right, exactly. Know? Well, and even just on stuff you might believe, I mean, you might hear from people you might believe in, check and verify things all the time. That's why I think personal contact uh, with voters is going to make such an incredible difference because I'm always surprised, not just we talk about Act 10 and education, but think about it. We announced last week unemployment's down to 2.9%. That's the lowest in the history of the state of Wisconsin. We've got more people unemployed in the state than ever before. We're a top 10 state for low unemployment. We're a top five state for the percentage of people in the workforce. I just mentioned how much money we poured in edu- er, into education. Uh, we have health care systems in the state that are ranked number one in the nation for quality. We, moved, we transitioned more than 25,000 people off of food stamps into the workforce. We've frozen tuition six years in a row to make college more affordable or UW campuses. That's a pretty amazing record, but you, about half the electorate doesn't believe that's true, even those are just, those are basic black and white facts. And, and so we just live at a time in an era where, not just here, but across the nation, I think one of our biggest challenges, set aside politics, is just how do we have meaningful conversations uh, about issues if we don't even agree on what the facts are, let alone the interpretation of those. The things I just mentioned are facts. You can check them upside and down. You can argue who's responsible, what degree is responsibility. Those things are open to interpretation. But the facts are the facts, and I think that's why all of you here and all those listening uh, who care about these issues are going to have to make a point between now and November and get that message out. Governor, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk to you about the facts of unemployment and employment. Stick around. You're listening to Insight 2018. This is Jeff Wagner with Governor Scott Walker. Welcome to Insight 2018, presented by Annex Wealth Management and sponsored in part by eCourtReporters.com and Associated Builders and Contractors of Wisconsin on WTMJ. Now, here's your host, Jeff Wagner. We're back, joined once again by the governor of the state of Wisconsin, Scott Walker. 
Governor, when you took over, the unemployment rate in the state of Wisconsin was a little bit over 9%, I think 9.2%. Actually, the, the, the numbers, the updated numbers from the federal government are at the beginning of 2010, it was actually 9.3%. 9.3%, okay. And uh, the most recent numbers, unemployment 2.9%, which is close to structural unemployment. By that I mean... There's always going to be some people who are going to be between jobs. Uh, essentially, almost anybody who really wants to get a job can get a job. How did that happen? Well, a combination of things. I mean, the, the biggest uh, thanks for that are to the hardworking employers of the state, because I understand that government doesn't create jobs, people do. And so there's a lot of people out there, current employers who expanded and took on more risk, others who started up new companies and did it. What we did was help create a better business climate. Now, when I ran, not only beginning of 2010 was unemployment at 9.3%. According to Chief Executive Magazine, we ranked in the bottom 10 states for business. Uh, I'm proud to tell you that last year, for the first time in the history of that ranking, we moved up to a top 10 state for business. Give me four more years. I want to compete with Texas and others for the top state in America uh, when it comes to business. But it, it really was a combination of things. And I say we because, again, you know, Robin Voss, Scott Fitzgerald, others who were involved in the past have been a great help in the legislature. We got a tremendous team in our cabinet working with the private sector all across the state. And really what we did, we, I break it down into two categories. It's, it's getting out of the way, so it's lower taxes. We cut taxes on income. We cut taxes on property. We cut taxes on employers. In fact, by the end of this year, both property and income taxes will be lower than they were at the end of 2010. The cumulative impact, as I mentioned, was $8 billion. In fact, I remember once upon a time, uh, years ago, 20 years ago, we were a top five state for state and local tax burden. Not exactly where you want to be at. Ten years ago, we were a top, five, a top ten. Last year, you may have missed it in many media outlets. I know you talked about it. We were below the national average for state and local tax burden. We want to keep chipping away at that. So we understand part of it's helping employers keep more of that money and reinvest it. Uh, other parts in terms of cost are streamlining the process so we get rid of the bureaucratic red tape and just focus on true things that, that are important like public health and public safety and getting rid of frivolous and out-of-control lawsuits. So those were all part of getting out of the way and, and letting employers go forward. The other part where we are an appropriate partner uh, is in areas like education and training. I mentioned what we've done in education. We're stepping it up even more because with unemployment as low as it is right now, the only obstacle to creating even more jobs and opportunity is having the talent to fill those spots. And so that's why we made those record investments in the schools. That's why we made enormous investments in our technical college. That's why we not only made more investments in the University of Wisconsin system, but we tied it to performance. We said for our new money, it's not about enrollment. It's about graduates in high-demand areas that are filling careers that we need here in the state of Wisconsin. We upped our Wisconsin Fast Forward program, which is customized worker training by 40%, and we're building the infrastructure to support both in terms of transportation, water, and infrastructure uh, that we need for our employers in the state. If we do those things and we keep bringing more talent to the state of Wisconsin, I think there's no end to how great the state of Wisconsin can be over the next few years. One other thing I might add. And this is very similar. The only other time we were close to unemployment at, at the level we are today was back in the 1990s. Tommy Thompson was governor. Unemployment at that time was the lowest at 3%. So we're, we're just below that now, which is great. But Tommy Thompson, amongst other things, pushed welfare reform in the 1990s. It became a model not only for Wisconsin, but for the nation as a whole. We're pushing that again. And the reason is the same as back then. 
We can't afford to have anybody on the sidelines. We need everybody in the game. It's why, uh, with the help of the legislature, uh, we've been able to put in place plans that say if you're a working age, able-bodied adult, you've got to be employed at least 30 hours a week. You've got to go through a screening process to make sure you can pass a drug test. If somehow you fail the drug test, we set money aside for rehabilitation. Why? Because we know in the business climate we live in today, there's not a single person that if they're not healthy, I can't find a job for in the state of Wisconsin. We're doing it all over the state. Every one of our 72 counties saw a reduction in the unemployment rate uh, this past month. We're going to continue to grow in every part of the state of Wisconsin. There's no excuse. Public assistance is good to do when people are down and out, but it shouldn't be a tramp. It should be a trampoline and not a hammock. And that's exactly what we're pushing going forward. We're talking about the, the labor force. And of course, one of the big achievements of the last year is has been Foxconn, you know, coming into, you know, the Mount Pleasant and Racine County. Um, let me break it down into a couple of questions. First of all, are you surprised that that some people have been just as opposed to Foxconn? They were interviewing the newspaper <laughs> the other day. One of the, the executives was saying he doesn't understand this. They're bringing 13,000 jobs. He thought Republican, Democrat, bride side, groom side, everybody would embrace it. Have you been surprised at that? No, because it's an election year. If I say that it's dark out, the liberals will say it's light out. If I say the water's blue, they say it's red. Uh, if this was next year in 2019, Democrats would be stepping over themselves to be for this because for years, Democrats have said they're for good-paying, family-supporting jobs. That's exactly what these 13,000—I just came from Racine County—13,000 jobs that will pay $53,875 plus benefits on average a year. If that's not a good paying family supporting job, I don't know what is. Those are the kind of jobs my grandfather, who worked as a machinist for 42 years, raised my uncle, my father, and my two aunts on that, most of the time by himself. That's the kind of job that built America. That's the kind of job we need back in the state of Wisconsin again. And it's not just manufacturing. It's advanced high-tech manufacturing that will not only create more jobs. It's 13,000 direct jobs. It's 22 2,000 more indirect jobs. Um, We just saw the chamber in the Milwaukee area put out a study they did independent of us the other day that showed the economic impact beyond just the direct jobs in total is 18 to 1. Who amongst you here? Those are pretty good. Dave, those are like your odds here, right? 18 to 1, right? That's pretty good. $18 return for every dollar that the state invests in terms of incentives on this. That is a heck of a deal out there. And it's not just about the return on jobs. It's the construction work, $10 billion, almost 10,000 construction workers. It's the um, supply chain. You know, you look at Oshkosh Corporation, great Wisconsin company, a company that's growing, a company that makes the armored vehicles for men and women in the military. They do about $300 million with a supply chain in state a year. That equates to over 700 companies in about 140 different communities across the state of Wisconsin. That's big. Foxconn's going to be four times that big. And the best part, though, I just saw some kids. I was in Kenosha County before that at Shoreland, uh, uh, Shoreland um, uh, Lutheran High School, and I was in their STEM area. And what was amazing to me was to see these young people there and across the state, not just in southeastern Wisconsin, but across the state, who in our schools and in our technical colleges and in our university systems are in class today studying because they want to work for Foxconn or subsidiary, or someday they want to start a company that's going to do business with, with Foxconn. And that's keeping our graduates here in the state of Wisconsin instead of brain drain. That's brain gain, exactly what we need in this state. Governor, we're going to take a very quick break. We're back with war in just a minute. You're listening to Insight 2018. 
We now return to Insight 2018, presented by Annex Wealth Management and sponsored in part by eCourtReporters.com and Associated Builders and Contractors of Wisconsin on WTMJ. Now, here's your host, Jeff Wagner. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with the governor of the state of Wisconsin, Scott Walker. Governor, let's talk a little bit about the politics of 2018. Um, You were elected in 2010, approximately 53% of the vote, similar sorts of totals in, in 2014. Those were different years than, than 2018. Um, President Trump, I think the jury is still out on whether or not he's going to be an asset or a liability to Republicans. Uh, there appears to be perhaps an enthusiasm gap. Maybe Democrats are more motivated than Republicans to get out and vote. All right, how does, how does Scott Walker run in 2018? What's the plan? I think I run as Scott Walker, nobody else. Uh, I mean, in the end, uh, that's who I am. It's what I've done. It's what I'll do going forward. And if, if you want to vote for something else or somebody else, then you should run for some other office. But I'm running for governor of the state of Wisconsin, and uh, I'm going to do what's in the best interest of the people of the state of Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, in 10 and, 12, uh, 10 and 14, you're right. The win was at the back of Republicans. A lot of people were upset with o- President Obama and Obamacare and the federal overreach. In 2012, uh, the left started out motivated. The right got motivated after a while. And in the end, I honestly think the reason why we not only won, but by a bigger margin we did the first time, was uh, our Midwest values. Independents in this state said, you know what? It's not fair to have a recall over a disagreement. Uh, we don't have recalls for that purpose. This person deserves a chance to fill out his term. And we'll judge him in 14 when he's up to see if he's accomplished what we think he should. But we don't have recalls just for the sake of having a, a disagreement over something. In 18, the wind in part because of Washington, in part because of the national media, is clearly in the face of, of Republican-leading, uh, Republican candidates and Republican-leading voters. Uh, but I don't think we get caught up in that. Uh, to me, I've said, for example, the president, the president does things that are good for Wisconsin. I, I'm going to support it. I think the tax cut that will save the typical family in this state, $2,508 for a, a typical family where mom and dad work and two kids are, are, are living at home, is a good thing for the people of the state of Wisconsin. I think much of the regulatory reform this administration has done to help farmers and manufacturers and small businesses is a good thing. So if he does things I support, I'll say it. If he does things I may not agree, may not necessarily agree with that have nothing to do with Wisconsin, I'll keep my mouth shut. And if on occasion, like on the tariffs, uh, where I had an issue with steel and aluminum tariffs that, that I think have a negative impact on employers in the state of Wisconsin, I'll speak up, but I'll be respectful. Because I don't think voters, not just those on the right, I think a lot of independent voters are searching for leaders who aren't looking to get in a fight on everything, who just want to get things done. And so even if I disagree with the president of my own party on occasion, I'll be respectful about it, as I did with the tariffs, and explain why I hope they'll change their mind or reconsider, at least carve out some of the areas that are important in Wisconsin. But I think in the end, people need to know that my ultimate interest isn't a party or a cause or a movement. It's the people of the state of Wisconsin. As I prove that every single day, I think that's the recipe for success in November. When you watch, I don't know if you watched 60 Minutes last week, but when you, when, when you, when you see... I, I waited till Giannis was on. And by the way, <laughs> he's amazing. He's so humble. I thought he can't... I, I love the fact that a lot of people tuned in because I can't... T- honest to God, I can tell you, I had friends from all across America text me who said, I tuned in for another reason and I'm glad I stayed to watch Giannis because that is an impressive young man. You're lucky to have him in the state of Wisconsin. <laughs> 
Well, I'm, <laughs> that's great, but I'm not going to let you. Do, I mean, I'm not going to let you. I didn't you watch the it. other part. Well, I, honestly, uh, I had no uh, interest. I mean, okay, to well. me that, and, and I'm not asking a dog in you for asking no. about it, but to me, uh, one, it's amazing to me that, and, and I'm not excusing anything, so don't misread this. But to me, a lot of the people who were the, the chief excuse makers of Bill Clinton now suddenly getting worked up all over this. Um, to me, it's just amazing to see the the contradictions out there in society. The the bottom line is that. Uh, people in this state want a governor who's focused in on getting things done for the people of Wisconsin. And, and again, I'm not saying you're not doing this, but I get asked every single day uh, to, uh, to go after the president on something. And to me, it's real simple. My job is to be governor of the state of Wisconsin. My job is every single day to focus on getting things done that are good for the people of the state. I know back at the end of the year when the Capitol Press Corps was doing interviews and they wrote the stories back early in January about how the legislature was going to do nothing the beginning of the session. And then we came out in January with our state of the state address and laid out an ambitious agenda. And then the press corps in Madison said, no way he's going to get even half of this done. And then we got half of it done. And then they said, oh, there's huge disagreements between the speaker and the majority leader. And that's going to blow up and it's going to cost the governor. Well, you know what? I got all the things done that we wanted to get done. I got the things that we said we got done. Why, how did we do it? We actually talked to people, got things together, worked together, and in the end, not only did Republicans in the Assembly and the Senate vote on, on almost every one of those initiatives, we had broad-based bipartisan support because more than anything, people want to do things that are good for the people of the state of Wisconsin. That's exactly what we're doing. As long as we're on that topic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, running for re-election. Um, what does the future for Scott Walker look like beyond November of this year? I mean, is this it if you're reelected as governor? You must be talking to Tonette. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I guess he's never saying never, but I think, you know, 12 years is a pretty good time period to get things done. Uh, I think there's more to be done or I wouldn't be running. Um, you know, as, uh, as I was just saying to Racine County, I, I'm not running uh, again for the money because there's plenty <laughs> of other jobs that could pay a lot, whole lot more money right now. Uh, I just look at where we're at. And, and I, you mentioned Foxconn. I look at things in the horizon. I'd like to think in the next few years, uh, some of the folks that we know who are out in the federal government will, will do more to devolve power and responsibility away from Washington to the states and more importantly to the people as our founders intended. I'd like to be a part of making that happen. Uh, I think that uh, at the la local and state level, that's where we make things happen. That's where government's more effective, more efficient, more accountable. Uh, I'd like to see things happen. I, I was part of the group that worked with Ron, Jan Ron Johnson and, and Lindsey Graham and, and Bill Cassidy and others to try and take, for example, Medicaid and Obamacare, repeal it, send it back in a block grant back to the states where I thought we could do a better job here in Wisconsin than they could in Washington. I think that's true on education, on transportation, on energy, on a whole bunch of other issues. And I'd like to be a part of that over the next four years. I don't think that's an endless thing. Right. Um, I, I, I always kid Tommy Thompson. You know, he was elected to four terms. This will be my fourth election. Either way, I'd like to think I'd tie Tommy's record. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, for me, it's not, about, uh, it's not about scoring victories as much as it is the legacy I'd like to leave is one where I look at Matt and Alex, my two sons. I look at Isabel and Eva, my two nieces, whose dad actually works right here at Country Springs. Talked to him earlier tonight. That's yeah. right. I, I got to say that remodeling looks pretty good. I haven't been in this room <laughs> since he told me about it. But I look at my nieces. I look at my kids. I look at all the other sons and daughters, nieces and nephews, grandsons and granddaughters like them. And for them, my legacy is I want them to inherit a better state than the one we inherited from our parents and grandparents. If I can say that by the time we're done, uh, whether it's four years or beyond, I, uh, I, I think that would be a job, uh, a mission accomplished. 
And I think that's probably a good pot, spot to knock this off. Governor, I, I can tell um, the, the enthusiasm. This isn't getting old, is it? For no, you? I love it. You know, I, I'll end with this. I'll tell you. So I was just at the school earlier. You can tell I get my wife's Italian, so I don't know why I move my hands as much as she would. But uh, God bless her. It's her 25th anniversary. It's amazing. She put up with me that long. In February 6th, we enjoyed 25 years together uh, as a married couple, which is you can applaud for that, right? Uh, actually, applaud for Tonette. Uh, for putting up with me that one, but but uh, but the thing I'll end with I've got is six months in. Six oh, that's months. Good. Six, uh, mu- yeah. six months. Yeah, we got six good. months in. That's absolutely, pretty, pretty That's really good, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, I, I, don't take that bad. Uh, but the uh, but but I think about uh, having been over at, at the um, at the school before and a bunch of schools this week. And uh, before that, I go to farms and small businesses and hospitals and clinics and places all around the state. And I got to tell you that the best part about my job. A young woman asked me the other day, at, at, uh, her dad had a business over in Maguanago that makes these uh, great pieces for wind turbines that you see all around the world. They make them, the replacement parts right here in the state of Wisconsin. She said, what's the best part of your job? I said, I love to travel the state. I'm out almost every day, one part of the state or the other. And I got to tell you, it's so amazing to see how proud people are of their schools, of their farms, of their small businesses, of their clinics, of their communities, of their churches, of their VFWs or Legion Post or whatever veterans organization. There's just such pride, in, and it's not, it's not brash pride. It's just pride because they, they love the communities they love in, uh, live in. They love their families. And I got to tell you, it makes me proud to be your governor, to see the kind of pride and hard work and determination in the state. That's what keeps me motivated every single day. The best thing I can do is get out of the Capitol where there's a whole lot of cynicism and get out to the reality of all the other working people in the state who work hard, who are proud about their communities, are proud of their homes, and they're working hard to make sure that next generation is doing better than they do. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, Governor Scott Walker.